Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 30 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Today we're going to discuss three cases, one from the Illinois Supreme Court, one from the Indiana Supreme Court, and one from the Seventh Circuit. From Illinois, we're going to discuss Hagi versus Zavala, pardon for my mispronunciation, which is a case about whether and to what extent an insurer must comply with HIPAA and what orders need to be entered uh, and what form of order must be entered in order to get health insurance information, what be, must be done with that information thereafter. From Indiana, we're going to talk about Griffin versus Menards involving an allegedly defective box that the plaintiff pulled off the shelf and caused him injury. We'll also discuss the summary judgment procedure in Indiana, which is, shall we say, unique. Uh, and then finally, from the Seventh Circuit, we're going to discuss our old friend excessive fines from the Eighth Amendment which appropriately enough, we discussed on episode eight of the Podium and Panel podcast <laughs> in a case called Grashoff versus Payne, which deals with uh, a uh, recipient of un unemployment benefits who shouldn't have been because she allegedly fraudulently uh, failed to disclose certain income that she had from a part-time job. And this relates to the Tims versus Indiana case. Uh, appropriately enough, this case also comes from Indiana. Indiana residents... Don't do things in Indiana. They're coming for your money. Especially um, if they can find intent or uh, yeah. non-negligence, even negligence. Exactly. Secret. They, are, might they, be really, they really want to come after your money. So as always, let's get started for our first uh, case today as we've got quite a lot to cover. The Hagi case is a case that was argued before the, Indiana, the Illinois Supreme Court this week, and it deals with the interaction between state insurance law and regulation, federal law, and regulation regarding issues of of health of health insurance or health health information, and then also Illinois' constitutional constitutional right to privacy with regards to in, information that insurers maintain and share and then use for case evaluation and fraud detection. Um, these these issues are um, evergreen. Nearly every case uh, tort case involves insurance to one degree or another. Uh, but there's some basic things we need to talk about. First of all, HIPAA is the federal statute that deals with, in part, protection of what's called PHI, protected health information. It's also important to remember that state law and regulation governs insurers. We've talked about this in the past, but that's important to keep in mind. So you may have a conflict between these two, and the object here is try to put these things together. And you have Graham Leach Bliley and all the privacy laws that were implemented in each state for not only the privacy notices that you go to the wastebasket that you get every year, but there's also a security uh, provision of, of Graham Leach Bliley that required every insurance company back in the late 90, 1990s to have uh, in place uh, policies and procedures about how they shared information. As Pat said, they share with others, third-party claim administrators, underwriters, in particular, they care that with respect to the discussion in this case, it's NICB, the National Insurance Crime Bureau. They also share it with ISO, who apparently was an amicus in this case. So let's let's talk about this case because this is part of a broader effort by State Farm in particular. You notice I didn't mention State Farm in the caption. That's because they were an intervener. Right. State Farm has a nationwide effort to try to formalize and regularize. That's a word. The obtaining and maintaining of these records. State, uh, State Farm in Illinois uh, got an order entered in Cook County uh, with the uh, um, in a case they intervened in in front of Judge Ehrlich, who was put in charge by Judge Flannery of uh, drafting an order with both defense and uh, plaintiff's counsel. Uh, the plaintiffs didn't take much of an interest in that. This was five or six years ago now. Yeah. And they only got really involved at the end, at the at the tail end of when the order had really been drafted. It is an order that is uh, really robust and favorable to insurers. So the 
Uh, State Farm then intervened into a case pending in Lake County and took the show on the road to try to get the court to there to enter the Cook County Qualified Protective Order, QPO. Uh, the second district or the Lake County courts were not nearly as amenable, uh, and they rejected that. Uh, and then that case went to the second district and the second district agreed that the order proposed by state farm that did not include a use and destruction provision was inappropriate under HIPAA. In the meantime, while that was going on, judge Ehrlich proposed a Supreme court rule to the Illinois Supreme court rules committee to try to have that order used statewide, to try to to have, instead of Cook County being one of 102 counties with its own order, to try to uh, regularize this process across the the state. Uh, The Supreme Supreme Court Rules Committee rejected that request, but there is, if you want to listen to the arguments made there, those are available online, and I've linked to those this week in in my uh, um, post on the topic. So this is a long-running battle. Uh, And so procedurally, how we get here, as I said, State Farm is the insurer of the defendants in these two cases, intervened into the case uh, and tried to get this protective order entered under Rule 201, which is the Supreme Court rule that governs protective orders. Uh, And they object to the use and destruction orders because that they claim that interferes with their ability to comply with regulation. Dan, why don't you tell us, with that setup, and I apologize that was kind of long, but it's kind of important to understand what's really going on here. Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, the oral argument? Thanks, Pat. And and it uh, it is a complex area. I've been doing, uh, I think as Pat mentioned in one of his posts, I've been working on privacy and these issues, HIPAA and Gramm-Leach-Bliley and, and uh, other privacy regimes uh, since the late 1990s. HIPAA came out in 96. Gramm-Leach-Bliley came out in 1999. It, it mandated not only privacy notices that you get and discard that talk about the ways in which insurance companies use, store, share their data and, and who they can share it with, including claims administration, uh, but also HIPAA or HIPAA, Gramm-Leach-Bliley and, and the laws in all 50 states that were passed based on Gramm-Leach-Bliley all include provisions for data security and how these uh, data is secured. Uh, the, the, the arguments began with a, what appears to be a joke by Mike Rhesus, uh, who said that, uh, bear with me, I haven't done this before. And it's um, a joke because Mike's a frequent flyer there before yeah, the, before the yeah. Illinois Supreme Court. But it did take him a minute to get set up, and, and the microphone quality, as Pat and I were talking before the show, is miserable at the Illinois Supreme Court. So maybe they, someone could spring for the $100 to get a better speaker or microphone or whatever's going on there. Yeah, th- that's a warning. If you listen to the oral argument, we encourage you to, if you're interested in the issue, be, hold your ears when the next advocate gets up, because you're right. going to hear a horrible screeching sound as they adjust the adjust the microphone. Mike's a tall guy, and he probably had to move it up so the microphone was near his mouth. And so, what, as Pat said, there were interesting questions here. Uh, the uh, second appellate uh, uh, found that this use in, in, and uh, destroy was valid and that State Farm was subject to it in Lake County. Uh, and it's an interesting case. It involves questions of preemption of HIPAA and, and state laws and the state constitution. And just to, for the, for those not familiar with HIPAA, um, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to property and casualty insurers. It applies to covered entities, which are healthcare providers and administrators. And it, it specifically excludes insurance addressing in there. Uh, but there's also business associates and there's also, you can be an uncovered entity but subject to HIPAA's rules. It's a very complex, again, uh, a regime for insurance companies, and especially in the property and casualty arena. It's important to remember, though, that insurers are not covered entities under HIPAA. That, that's um, what I said. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're uncovered entities. And that's the second district kind of did a little playing with that. So, well, you're an uncovered entity, but you're still subject to this, and you have to destroy. So, um, and there's a lot of regulations and rules at the Illinois level. Uh, there was discussion of the Illinois Constitution and privacy. And we do have a, a, some privacy in there, but it's not the robust privacy rights that are in the California Constitution or in most European constitutions. It's more about the uh, kind of the uh, search and seizure and, and privacy in our in our property, but a, a different, uh, a very ne- much more narrow uh, privacy right than you find in like the California Constitution and some other state constitutions. 
There was talk about uh, some of the sections of the regulations that deal with uh, claims and, and records retention, including 90120, which talks about the companies authorized to dispose of or destroy records in its custody that do not have sufficient administrative, legal, or fiscal value to warrant their further pr preservation or not need it. And uh, there, there's also 90130 that talks about detailed documentation shall be contained on each claim file in order to permit reconstruction of the company's activities relative to each such claim. So there's a lot of, again, it, it's it, it's pretty balanced or, uh, again, a complex issue. Um, as as uh, many would argue, uh, companies like State Farm and others use this data beyond uh, claims administration. Uh, but they, you, you, they do have to have certain records in their claims files as former director uh, Wagner was what they were they asked about his affidavit during the oral argument and he he mentioned specifically that having to remove this data from medical bills and from from the actual files uh, could be problematic um, you know one, one of the, one of the areas especially where this comes into play and and uh, Pat and I talked a little bit about this before the show but think about some of the long tail claims that have arisen in the insurance context, especially on the commercial side. And uh, for example, asbestos or pollution, and th those cases sometimes don't arise for 40 or 50 years. So imagine if, if uh, an insurance company had to purge all of its medical bills and, and, and direct medical data from its files, and then 10 years later, uh, the next whatever toxic tort uh, comes to fruition, that they might be in a difficult position. And I saw this under my career because, uh, you know, sometimes when we're going back 40 or 50 years, impossible to know where, if, if anywhere, those records were even located in boxes and stuff. In any event, there was a lot of, I, I think um, uh, the the uh, panel was trying to really figure, the, the Supreme Court was really trying to figure out here kind of where where's the limits, right? And what's the what, what's the balance that they can uh, derive from uh, having a rule that's, uh, you know, uh, says you have to destroy everything that's in the files versus the Cook County, you know, orders that are coming into play. Um, and uh, Pat, if we, again, if we, we, we both know if claim files do not contain the information necessary, insurers would be on the hook. Um, and uh, so it's an interesting case. Um, part of what was at, our, at issue here in the appellant argue that this was a de novo review, not abusive discretion is required because he said that they were looking at policies and procedures and, and actual, you know, issues of, of, of legal nature. Um, the argument State Farm I think makes, he's probably right. I think he's probably yeah. right on the standard of review. He pushed back yeah. very quickly when there was an abuse, a question that was framed in the, in the context of abusive discretion. He very quickly said, I disagree with you on the standard of review, which seems that might have been an issue in the briefs. Yep. And, 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 and as you mentioned, Pat, State Farm and liability carriers are not covered entities, but the trial court and appellate court both said that a non-covered entity is subject to the limits for litigation purposes. Um, and, and again, uh, I, I think this will be an interesting case. We'll see what the Supreme Court of Illinois does. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, again, I've worked with the insurance industry for years. They're subject to market conduct exams, and if files are incomplete, they're held to, uh, you know, making determinations and unfair claim practices, acts and settlements. Um, it gets very complex, though, because, again, medical bills, uh, a lot of times they don't have a lot of PHI. They just, you know, it'll have doctor visit. Right. But sometimes they do have actual detailed PHI that uh, is contained in them. And, and so, um, you know, what what uh, again, what Wagner said is putting a putting a sheet in each file that says that this stuff has to be purged once litigation's over. You know, the, the, the other reality here in balancing probably that needs to be considered is we're in an electronic age. So most insurers, at least the big ones, a state farm for sure, probably doesn't have paper files like in the old days with, with a claims, you know, handler having 50 or 100 files uh, on, on his office floor. They're probably all online. So the purging could be done uh, more simply. Um, the other thing I think it raises, Pat, is uh, th this issue is however they come down, is, is what about cases that don't go to litigation? What, what's, what's the rule on, on those thousands of files where they and get settled? And that's frankly most of them. Right. Most of the smaller files, most of the smaller cases are settled directly with the claimant or with the claimant's insur uh, lawyer, especially in automobile cases, pre-suit. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and whether that's automobile or homeowners or whatever – 
they're they could be commercial claims are settled pre-suit. Right. Uh, many, many are. And so you, but in the course of getting that, you get the, the plaintiff's attorney is all too happy to send you the medical bill so they can show, Hey, here's how bad my guy was hurt. Uh, give me the policy. Right. Or what do you do about in an uninsured or underinsured motorist case right. where you don't have these kinds of protections? So I, I, yeah. I, I, I they, simply winning this case doesn't get the, doesn't get the plaintiff's bar where they want to go. No, I, I and the I, other I, problem is what do you do about uh, sharing with third parties, NICB and ISO that I mentioned earlier? Right. Uh, you can't detect fraud, as, as appellant's counsel pointed out, without seeing the pattern. And you can't have the pattern if you don't have the records. Yeah, that the other thing is, is I serve as a Cook County arbitrator, and at least in the Cook County division, almost all the cases are auto cases. Many of them involve State Farm, just because State Farm, you know, pursues subrogation a lot and things. And again, we get the 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 ninety C packages, and they're full of medical bills, and and not only medical bills, but the medical notes, right? Because they're, they're all arguing and proving up damages of, of what they're or there may be causation issues or exacerbation right. issues in a given case and all of that's everywhere right um, and and state farm not only as a defending their insureds but also as you said subrogating on medical pay on med pay payments uh, or on you know these kinds of things or uninsured motorist payments that they made or that they think they shouldn't have had to pay um, or trying to subrogate even where there was an insurance they got to show they, they, they got to show their work. The, the other interesting thing that was raised was was uh, Medicare secondary pay, which has become a much bigger issue in the insurance arena in the last decade. And again, you have to show, you know, what what you paid and what belonged to Medicare. So again, interesting issues. And uh, as you have said, Pat, you know, in in this age, with the the age of privacy, there is no privacy. It's all, um, you know, if it's if it's wrongly accessed or disclosed, maybe there's a case, but you know. How courts and and any any uh, judicial system can rectify rights of privacy? That's kind of gone by the wayside. I think that's. Yeah, hey, I I think the sooner people come to the, come to the realization there is no such thing as privacy anymore, um, the the easier it'll be to deal with these things, and then you have will have causes of action for inappropriate access or use. And the use one of the things that State Farm wants to be able to use it for is rate setting. Right, and that's one thing I think that there's that the plaintiffs are particularly objecting to. Uh, so yeah. I, 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 but that's clearly a permissible use under the regulation. So you have this contest okay. between the regulations and the law and it puts the insurance company in a, in a whipsaw between who do I follow here? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the problem. And it might be more important in current times because there are more and more states that are going back to accredited insurance scores and, re, and the state of Washington recently uh, prohibited that, that Massachusetts and New Jersey are taking steps might become Illinois soon, and so well, there's a stat, there's a bill that hasn't gone anywhere this year, but it's right. been an ongoing issue over the last five years or so. Um, if you can't use credit scoring and you can't get the medical bills, and I can't use, well, how are we supposed to? How are we supposed to rate risks? Right. Uh, that's not that's not going to help anything. It's only going to make insurance companies uh, rates are going to rise or fall based upon more arbitrary schemes. It's going to put insurance companies at risk. With the whole point of the Department of Insurance is to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. We want to keep insurance companies solvent. Right. Um, so, and that, that deals with the rating of risk. So with that, Dan, um, we will take our first break and come back uh, with Griffin versus Menards. We're back with our second case, Griffin versus Menards on episode 30. And this is an interesting Indiana Supreme Court case. And the question is, is a real retail store liable when a business invitee is injured, when he removed a defective box from a store shelf, causing an injury? Uh, there was a sink in the box, and, and one of the staples was allegedly not there, and the, and the sink fell on him. There was a lot of talk also about the doctrine of res ipsa loquitur, and does it apply to premises liability claims where patrons have access to the product, bringing the exclusive control prong into doubt, unlike some of the cases that were discussed in oral arguments about shelving and other things that were in the control only of the store. Uh, and what role should company guidelines play in determining the duty owed by a defendant? There was talk about the fronting of, of products. And I worked at Osco Drugs back when I was in high school. And, and the biggest thing for fronting is, is more to make the, the place look clean 
and to make sure that the, the uh, products that were expiring first were in front. And it's just really, it's exactly what it says it is fronting. It's kind of like a librarian putting the books all at the edge of the shelf. They're not picking up every box, which was one of the justices acts. Are, are, is somebody supposed to go through every aisle of this, of this store and pick up everything off the shelf every night? Like it's it, it, so in, in any event, there, there were company guidelines about fronting and inspection. Pat, you know, we've talked about and no te- and testimony that they what the, the store manager wasn't sure that they had been followed, which was right. which was part of the point of his argument. So right, right. And and then the question was, well, do you guys have any reg- guidelines regarding safety? Uh, right. Council for Menards that that questioning didn't go well. Uh, as you're getting to uh, Pat, Pat, we've often talked about some of the unique features of Indiana law. Uh, I'm not licensed there, uh, but each time we discuss the process for grant of appeal and other aspects, I'm fascinated just because I'm used to Illinois law. Primarily, this court offers us another glimpse of how Indiana can be different, as Pat mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this time in connection with its summary judgment standard. It is different than federal summary judgment standard in important ways. And under Indiana standard, a party seeking summary judgment has to negate an element of the other party's claim or establish an affirmative defense, such as the statute of limitations, with undisputed evidence. Under the federal standard, by contrast, the moving party can simply assert the other party has no admissible evidence to support the claims, the so-called no evidence summary judgment motion, which was sanctioned by the United States Supreme Court in Solitex Corp versus Catrett. Indiana law is also clear about plaintiff safety while on the premises, and Pat can talk a little bit about that more. And in this case, as mentioned, the Griffins filed a premises liability negligence complaint against Menards after Walter Jr., was injured, injured when a sink he was lifting fell out of its box. The L Court Superior Court granted summary judgment in Menard's favor. The Court of Appeals reversed in part, holding that there was disputed questions of fact and uh, vacated the, the judgment. judgment. The Anna Supreme Court has granted petition to transfer, uh, which, which was mentioned at the beginning of the case, and assumed jurisdiction over the case. Pat, tell us about this oral argument. Thanks, Dan. Uh, what I think, first of all, warning for those uh, that we gave a warning with the last one, we'll give a warning here. If you listen to the oral argument, don't be surprised if for the first four minutes of the recording, there's there's just silence. For some reason, the recording started before the at, before the chief judge, chief justice uh, brought court brought court to order and and started. So fast forward four minutes, and you'll save that time. Uh, that's the first thing, uh, the procedural issue. This was an argument, Dan, where there was a lot of the judges, justices, I should say, arguing with each other through the questions as they were asking the advocate. I mean, this was it was it was count, count point counterpoint from the justices based upon the questioning that they were uh, giving the particular whoever whatever advocate it happened to be that was arguing. Um, the 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 question here is what is the scope of the duty? Now the facts here seem to show they seem not to be in dispute that the box comes off the truck, it gets to, it gets put on the shelf. And between that process, they're supposed to inspect. And if they find a defective box, Menards can send the box back and get a full refund from the, re- from the retailer or from the uh, manufacturer. So the fact that this box ended up on the shelf is pretty good evidence that it wasn't defective when it was delivered. Now, if it had been, this is a different case. Right. But it was, but we're we're going to go with the assumption. And the evidence was that it wasn't effective. So somehow it got damaged while it was on the shelf. Who did it? When they did it? Are important questions for notice because a premises owner only has to is only liable for conditions on their land, dangerous conditions on their land that they knew about or should have known about. And if it's the action, there was no evidence of actual notice here. No. So it had to be constructive notice. And you've heard me say before what constructive notice is, get ready for something that didn't actually happen. Um, and so then we come to, all right, how do we, how could they possibly constructively know? Well, if they had been following their guidelines to front the, pro- the, 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 the product. But even if you did that, you wouldn't see a missing staple on the bottom of the of the sh- of the box, right? You wouldn't lift the box. You, you wouldn't lift the box. Forward. You wouldn't inspect the box. I mean, it, you're dealing with Menards. It's they've got thousands of items on the on the showroom floor um, or, or on the store floor, and and so there, it really that doesn't make any sense. That the the balancing that you do in a premises case is 
it deals with what's the what's the magnitude of the burden relative to the benefit. If the magnitude of the burden was every night you had to check, I mean, they would never do anything in that store but check boxes. That's right. all they would do. They wouldn't sell product. They wouldn't stock product. They wouldn't fix. They, all they would do is check boxes. Um, and so that can't possibly be the law. So, and also it may be entirely ineffective because this brings us to the point of okay, you know, everyone has seen it. Everyone might have done it. You get a you get a product. You want to check it out. You want to see what's it look like in there. And you open up the box and you look. It's like ah, I don't want this one. You put it back on the shelf. And during that process, there may be destruction to the box. So that so how often do you have to inspect the box? Because every night may not be enough. Let's suppose the guy five minutes before Mr. Griffin went to go get the get the sink out or get the sink off the shelf. He's the one that damaged the box five minutes. How was the company possibly supposed to know about that five minutes before? And even if so, you have cameras everywhere. You, well, yeah. well, we get to the cameras. Okay, so yeah. what, good. That bring you to the cameras. So in this case, the plaintiff brought a spoliation claim. Now, spoliation is if you destroy evidence. Now, in this case, the camera there wasn't a camera in this area. Remember we talked about on the FOIA case about blind spots. Well, one of the blind spots apparently is where this sink gets sold. Right. And so they brought a spoliation claim, You meaning you spoiled something you never actually had. And the appellate court went, uh, no. No, they were right. going to go no on that. They didn't appeal that dismissal. Good. I can't believe they appealed it the first time. They appealed it. The, so anyway, but that brings us to their other claim, which is a recipsa loquitur claim, which is Latin for the thing speaks for itself. And that essentially has three elements. It's the type of thing that would not have happened without, in the absence of negligence, the defendant had complete control of the instrumentality of the injury and the plaintiff didn't contribute to the cause. So the real, so the classic example is the doctor leaves the sponge inside of the patient. The patient is under general anesthesia. They claim we had nothing to do with this. You don't leave sponges inside of people absent absent negligence. Plainly, that's re- that's the classic recipsa example. And the well, chief ju- the chief justice used that example. She, that's the, she did, and that's the example everyone uses because it's so clearly so the plaintiff had nothing to do with it. There, there's. Um, so then we come to, well, in this case, the real question is, well, number one, can this occur in the absence of negligence? I'm not so sure that there had to be necessarily any negligence, but even if we can see that it didn't happen or couldn't have happened in the absence of negligence, you're drawn to the exclusive control prong. So does the store have exclusive control of this box? And the question is, well, not really, right. because pay other patrons or other business invitees are able to come and access the boxes as we discussed, open it up, look inside, put it back, this kind of a thing. So do they really have exclusive control? And it's, it's it very, some of the justices were very skeptical that there is the exclusive control of the kind of thing we're talking about. Now it's important to remember that recipsa is not a cause of action. It's a method of proving a cause of action. In this case, negligence, usually it would be negligence. Uh, and the, in, in this case, how do they prove that the, there was negligence here? Well, because it was within their control because it's in their store and that can't be. So we had a lot of hypotheticals being posed by the justices. So they said, okay, well, what if you've got the boxes and they're stacked up and there's some guys working on top and he drops the box and it hits the patron and the defense counsel for the uh, Apple, the defense Menard said, yeah, we're on the hook for that. Yeah, right. that, that's a problem. Right. Or if we stack the boxes up and they collapse and the plaintiff is just w- happening to be walking by. Again, that's that's probably the Menards has got a problem. But this is different. This is one box on a shelf, properly placed, presumably. He takes the box off and it the box uh, uh, collapses or whatever. And that's, I think we've all probably had that happen or seen that happen. And unfortunately, in this case, Mr. Griffin, Griffin was injured. Um so it's a it's a very interesting case that on its face kind of looks kind of pedestrian, but it raises a lot of issues about uh, what do what should you expect in these big box stores when you go there? And it's not because it's not just uh, you know Menards. It's which apparently one of the justices frequents his local Menards. Right. He mentioned, "Hey, what do I have to worry about when I'm walking up and down the aisles of of Menards?" Bringing experience uh, in again, as we've talked it, about often. Exactly, and so. The, but I also want to bring us back to the question one of the justices asked, and I apologize, I didn't, I don't remember which justice it was, was he asked under Illinois, under Indiana's summary judgment standard, how does this work? Because essentially counsel for a point, counsel for a pal, appellee, your argument is they don't have any evidence. 
that would work great in federal court. That would work great in Illinois where we have seal attacks type motions. Doesn't really cut the mustard under Indiana law. Because under Indiana law, the movement has to show that there's no genuine issue of material fact. It's not enough to say they don't have any evidence that they're of, of a particular element or all of the elements of the cause of action. So it's a, it's a materially different standard. It's very subtle, uh, but it's important because they have affirmed this repeatedly, that this is how we are not adopting seal attacks. It's not enough for the for a defendant to come in and simply say they don't have evidence. You've got to show they that there is no question of fact. And how you do that in this circumstance is really kind of hard because they don't have any evidence. And neither and, does the defendant. And on rebuttal, the, the advocate was asked about, you know, if you go to trial, you don't have any evidence. Do, do you do you uh, what are we gonna have provide? a trial about? And he said, no, I, I won't be able to sustain and overcome that. I, I don't. I mean, right. He's going to have the about? burden of he's going to have the burden of production at trial. And what is he going to produce? Right. He can't produce any evidence of notice. He can't produce any evidence of of, uh, you know, when this happened or I, I don't know why this case would get tried because I don't know what they would try. And and that's I think what the struggle is with the, at least some of the justices. Yeah. What exactly would you get back to? What, what are we doing here? So uh, an interesting case. uh because I just don't know where it's going. Even though there is this esoteric question, I, I don't. I, I think this is the case that shows the flaw, kind of, in not adopting the Celotex type motion. But that's the law in Indiana until they change it, and they reaffirmed it as recently as seven years ago. So they mean it. Right. Um, now, whether they continue to mean it, we'll we'll see. So that'll be interesting to see in what they do here. Uh, with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Grassoff versus Payne. And three decisions that came out this week. Dan, we're three and zero this week. Three and zero, nice. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 30. And our next case is Grasshoff versus Payne. The moral of this story is don't lie to the government, especially if you live in Indiana. Plaintiff here made the claim that a sanction for fraudulently obtaining unemployment benefits uh, violates the Eighth Amendment. In this case, uh, the imposition of the fine, including a setoff of $2,800 she'd earned at the YMCA, was $11,190. And the appellant argued that that was not mere remediation, but places her in a much worse position uh, than if she had not applied for unemployment after being laid off from McDonald's after many years of employment. Um, By so the way, the person working at McDonald's, just put this in context, person working at McDonald's had over a half a million dollars in assets. In assets. McDonald's pays much better than I realized. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or she had an inheritance part. or something. Yeah, some, some, something. Uh, that was pretty astounding. Uh, in this case, uh, in this argument builds on our discussion on op episode eight of the podcast, where we both discussed Tim's versus Indiana. That was the case uh, that was referenced in oral argument and was the Land Rover uh, for, a, for a man that uh, had been uh, indicted for uh, drug uh, sales. The panel was asking questions about gross disproportionality and other issues uh, that Pat will get into. And what was interesting in this case is that the ACLU of Illinois joined the National Center for Law and Economic Justice, the Fines and Fees Justice Center. I didn't even know there was a Fines and Fees Justice Center until I saw that. Uh, the Shriver Center on Poverty Law, the R Street Institute, the National which ACLU. Is a, which is a right of center. Group. Right right? The National ACLU, the ACLU of Wisconsin, and the ACLU of Indiana all filed an amicus brief. It's unclear if it was one brief or separate briefs to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in support of Ms. Grassoff. Pat, why don't you tell us about the oral argument in this case? Thanks, Dan. And I think that, um, you know, we were talking beforehand, you know, all these amicus that got filed, it's obviously a very important issue. But one of the, the, you know, it's not the best selection of a plaintiff 
this case uh, uh, was filed in federal court by Ms. Grashoff in the Northern District of Indiana, uh, I believe Fort Wayne, for a complaint for declaratory relief and injunctive relief to prevent the state of Indiana from imposing this fine. So this was plain. She was the plaintiff below, and she's the appellant before the uh, before the Seventh Circuit because she lost, uh, and the trial court held that they could impose this fine. So as Dan said, she put in for unemployment. Uh, she collected uh, about eight thousand dollars, but she had twenty eight hundred dollars of which she didn't report a twenty eight hundred dollar earning from the YMCA, and then she got hit with a fine of eleven thousand one hundred ninety dollars. And the question is, one of the questions is, how do you, your mediation is one thing, so they can do that, but punitive, a, a punitive recovery is a different kettle of fish. And within that is the deterrence issue. Uh, and, and how does that play in? I want to play a question uh, from the argument. I believe it's from Judge Scudder uh, to try to set this, uh, the, the question, the answer, I think the government had a problem answering. Uh, and didn't really give an answer that he was particularly uh, particularly happy with. So here we go. How would you articulate? Well, remedial. I'd articulate it like this: the remedial component of the exactions is the portion that is compensating the state for. Uh, the harm that occurred. And here, when it pays out benefits on a fraudulent claim, Indiana law says there's no obligation to pay those benefits at all. Right. So you're defining it to be the, the state's just getting back that which it was not obligated to pay because of its representation. Absolutely, Your Honor. And, and I think it, a, Don't we know from Austin that a return, a return of a payment amount can be both remedial and punitive? So the important part here is that the important part here is is that the justice is, the judge is really struggling with how do you draw this line, and he goes on to ask how do you know when it's when it's what, uh, and and he really couldn't come up with what it was because they had charged more than what they had paid. The point that he ended up coming up coming to was well hold it if you just get back what you we just have to give back what you paid, then where's the deterrent effect? Why would you just commit fraud all over the place? And one of the other judges said, I think it was Judge Kirsch, said, hold it. We do this all the time in uh, um, uh, insider trading cases where we not only right. make you disgorge the profits, we make you pay a fine on top of it. Um, so you are in a worse position. Of course, that's the whole point uh, to be in that way. So um, the 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 problem they have here is really how is it disproportionate for this person, given her other assets? Uh, yes, she's worse off than she would have been had she never applied for unemployment, but there doesn't seem to be any doubt that she knowingly made this misrepresentation. Uh, she didn't think she needed to report it. Well, that's not really an excuse. Right. Um, I, I, as, as sympathetic as she might be in that regard, that's not really a reason not to report it. Um, they ask the question, do you have any sources of income? She didn't report it. Uh, so I think she's, they've got a problem. Uh, but the, and that may be why the Institute of Justice who represent Tyson Timms in the, in the, uh, in the Timms case probably didn't come in as amicus or others because the, the, the case, the vehicle is just not good. Um, or especially good in this case, given the fine is not that much it, relative to. Yeah, it's a three to one, and and, and the the uh, state argued that it was really only a twenty five percent was the actual penalty. The eighty six hundred was money that she received, and she shouldn't have received any of that, including the the twenty eight hundred. Right, she because received. what happens is when you when you she would have been entitled if she had disclosed the twenty eight hundred, she would have gotten something. But because she lied under their system, she what she doesn't she then loses her right to everything, and then she gets a penalty on top of that. And apparently, those penalties are accruing to this day. So uh, it's it's an interesting case, and it, as we said, it builds on something we've talked about um, as to how you uh, deal with the excessive fine issue, uh, and and what is what qualifies as an excessive fine, and that's why we bring it to you, uh, 
it's it's uh, we'll see what happens. I, I don't think it's going to turn out the way that the uh, plaintiff appellant hopes. I don't think so either. Uh, with that, do we want to go to our prediction, sure to go wrong, which went very right this week? I think so. Okay. Our first case was Covarubius versus City of Chicago, uh, which was a case we discussed on episode 25 and was the namesake for the hole in the pole. <laughs> Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, the Covarubius case? Sure. Uh, th- this was the case where there was a, a pole. One of the screws had rusted from wear and tear of the uh, ice and snow and other things. And there, like like in the Menard's case, very similar type of argument was being made by the plaintiff that there was a duty to go inspect all of these poles. There was, what, uh, 100,000 poles or, or something like that? In excess of that in the city of Chicago, the city. exactly. And the, in the court held, there was no notice of the condition to the city that the plaintiff waived, waived their objection to the exclusion of certain witnesses by not making proper offers uh, a proof of what the excluded witnesses would have testified to. And, and so... When we discussed the oral argument, it was recently um, that this case came out pretty quickly, episode 25, because we did a, a bunch of episodes around that time. Um, and so, yeah, the 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 uh, uh, appellate court uh, affirmed the jury verdict in favor of the city, uh, again, finding there's no duty or notice to the city of this uh, defective uh, uh, light pole. I think the procedural question here is what's really important about yep. this case, yep. and it deals with how to properly do an offer of proof. Don't try to do an offer of proof post-trial. You may, be, right. you may not do a formal offer of proof during trial, but at least get the informal offers of proof done during trial. Uh, and, and that's really the reason why I think they published the opinion, yep. is to try to make sure lawyers and judges know the right way to get this done. Uh, because they found there was, the, even though their waiver, they found that there was no no uh, prejudice as a result, but notwithstanding that, get it. Try to get it done right uh, during the trial. And as we've talked about repeatedly on episodes, it's very important to you know make the record appropriately at the trial court level at on all aspects, whether it's jury instructions, office of proof, objections, uh, you name it. Because we see over and over again that the appellate courts really can't do much. Uh, on, on uh, review standards, they to, could. They're just not going to. Well, they're they're not going to because it's within the discretion or within whatever uh, the standard is for the trial court to have made those decisions based on the record they had before them. That's right, and that brings us to our next two cases, which were cases that didn't make it to a jury. They were both done on a motion to dismiss. Uh, this is Wendling versus Milner, which we discussed. Uh, on episode 13 with Jared Beasley and in, and the facts of the case on episode 12, uh, where a police officer got a call, got dispatched, and didn't go for over an hour. Forgot. And it turned, and it just forgot. Just forgot. And it turns out he didn't have to go because under the uh, good faith, the Domestic Violence Act, he uh, didn't know that there was domestic violence going on, and therefore he didn't ha- he a- didn't have to act in good faith to do his job. Uh, that's disappointing in the extreme. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? It, it raises significant issues because when you get a 911 call, especially from a landline, which are very unique these days, for example, in my house, we don't even have a landline anymore. We, we, not, not one our household either. Hasn't been for years. For years. We, we turned it off because we we're just getting political calls and wasn't worth the cost of, of, of having it. You mean you didn't uh, want to pay to be to be uh, hawked uh, right. by uh, Democrats and Republicans calling right. to get, get money right. from you? Right, but 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 to me, it's uh, you know it, it's in the continuing thing we've we've talked about with qualified immunity uh, that it's really unqualified immunity in many cases because here again, if if, if a police officer gets a call, um, you know domestic violence cases. My dad was a police officer for many years. Those are some of the toughest calls to make because you could be in the middle of a. Of a, of a uh, an escalated situation with weapons and an endangerment. So um, again, this this seems to give uh, the the police officers an out, right? Well, you get a call. Ah, I'm not going to go to that thing. No idea that it's a domestic violence uh, case going on. He was he was busy working on a traffic report, right? And that brings speaking of traffic, this brings <laughs> us to Guyon versus Hernandez. Uh, fences make good neighbors, and maybe bollards do too. Uh, this is the case where. Uh, we that we talked about. Um, I forget which episode we talked about this. Oh, episode, episode fifteen. Episode fifteen. We talked about this case, 
And this is a case where the Mexican restaurant had one of its, maybe if it's patron, maybe not, we don't know. One of someone parking in that parking lot jumped the cur, jumped the uh, the parking bumper, and went into Mr. Guyon's building and put a hole in the building. Uh, he's a lawyer, he's, by the way. He was a lawyer. He, he was a lawyer who represented well, himself, uh, represented himself uh, at the appeal and at the trial court level. And we, if you remember during the oral or during our discussion of the case, we mentioned, hey, we didn't hear anything about Marshall. Well, guess what poked up its head during the in the in the opinion? Very short though it was. The Marshall case, which is the case of the flying vehicle that right. ran into a Burger King in Rockford and, and killed some poor person. And they held that you have to reinforce your building because flying vehicles are foreseeable. Uh, little did you know. Uh, but apparently vehicles hopping, going um, from one side of the property to another side of the property that aren't yours and run into your building, that's not foreseeable. I, I'm I, I'm. Hard to distinguish. I have a hard time squaring that circle. I that's yeah, it's very difficult to reconcile those two. And that they cited Marshall in an opinion that essentially says Marshall is bunkum is rather, which it is, is is rather amusing. It is uh, that what we were surprised about is that Guyon didn't cite didn't cite Marshall, sure. and at least not in oral argument. That would have been my entire argument. If I were if I were him, yep. uh, Dan, do we have more to add about uh, Guyon versus Hernandez? I don't think so. And and just for everybody listening, uh, that's twenty four cases that we've we've discussed on this show at least seventy five. I think seventy. So a lot a lot of cases in the pipeline, probably over the summer and into the fall, that will be as a uh, record will change. It will indeed, and as the opinion or as the arguments slow down, the opinions will pick up, especially from the United States Supreme Court and from the Illinois Supreme Court. So we're kind of the the shows are going to turn more into argue our opinions than they are going to be oral arguments as the number of oral arguments kind of slow down. Uh, so let's take a look at today's cases. Hague, what do you think on Hague? Uh, I think affirmed. I think as much so as well. I may not like it, I, I, I think it's going to get affirmed. I, th I think it's affirmed. And then that brings us to uh, Griffin, I think, affirmed. Affirmed. I, I can't see how they're going to say that the Menards, even with their, even if they have policies in place to ins do inspections or go through the store, how you would discover a box staple at the bottom of a box. It seems, and, and, it, it seems a duty too much to impose. Yeah. It's, and that brings yeah. us to Grassoff versus Payne, I, I think, affirmed here as well. I think so, too. And I think, I so think just because she's just not – the kind of when you commit fraud, don't be don't don't uh, they may send it back for a for a, a more robust analysis of the of the uh, of the excessiveness. But I mean, of course, that's the issue. But I I think that they've got enough to say, yeah, this is this is probably OK under these circumstances. Yeah, I do too. And, I, you know, I think in, in, the, in this current environment, I think it's especially interesting because I, for one, am a victim of the Illinois Department of Employment Security. Somebody uh, tried to get my unemployment. I had unemployment the same thing. And, and it, it, I nipped it in the bud, I think, and it's done. But, you know, there's there's actual fraud going on. And, you know, should she have disclosed? Yeah. I mean, um, just a warning to anybody that is on unemployment or doing these things. If you have side gigs, you better disclose, especially if you live in Indiana. That's right. So that brings us to the rule of the week. Dan, do you want to sure. uh, kind of set that up? And today's rule of the week is, let me get to it, is on Illinois Pattern Jury Instruction 5.01. Uh, Pat, last week we discussed the pattern jury instructions in Illinois and that there are around 800 pages, about one-third of California. 501 uh, provides and deals with the failure to produce evidence or a witness of a party to this case has failed uh, to offer evidence within his power to produce. You may infer that the evidence would be adverse to the party if you believe each of the following elements, and it goes through the elements. And it's it's kind of, uh, uh, again, in the uh, uh, case we discussed today uh, on spoliation and stuff. But, again, it's it's one of those things, in that case, it would be impossible to produce the evidence if they did. Because it never existed. Because it never existed. And so... Uh, one of those important jury instructions that, you know, if you have the ability to produce evidence, you don't, that that will be held against you uh, in the jury's uh, mind. 
it, it well, you, you think I, I, I that's yeah. one of the things that trial lawyers often wonder is, do they really understand what this instruction is saying? Right. Uh, but it, it's also <laughs> not only we discuss it in this case, we also discussed it in the Midwest sanitary case yep. where one of the alleged uh, uh, pieces of malpractice by the defense lawyer in the underlying case was that they lost the fo- telephone recording, um, which was an issue of dispute. But the, the and so that there was an adverse an adverse inference instruction, which is how this is how 5.01 is referred to an adverse inference instruction that was given to the jury in that case to say, you know, you're, you were a bad boy and didn't produce this evidence that you had access to, and you didn't produce a reason and you got barred the witness who was going to testify as to the reason why you didn't produce that evidence. So this is a, it's trial lawyer's worst nightmare. I'm not really sure how bad it is because I'm not sure how, if juries really understand it, but you still don't want it. Right. Right. So with that, Dan, I think uh, that's the show for the week. Uh, and uh, we've got three cases lined up already for next week that are going to be argued next Thursday, I believe, in the Illinois Supreme Court and the Indiana Supreme Court. Uh, look forward to speaking with everybody uh, next week. Thank okay. you very much. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.